you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Long Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. If Eric Garcetti becomes ambassador to India, who has the inside track to be the next mayor of L.A.? We'll get into that and more on our weekly California Politics Roundtable State of Affairs. Plus, do needles make you squeamish enough that it's stopping you from getting a COVID vaccine? Well, you are not alone, and there's a way to get over it. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for doing Friday with us. All right, let's kick it off as we do most Fridays with State of Affairs. That's our weekly dive into the California political pool. And this week, an ambassadorship could be dangled over L.A. City Hall where a nibble could set off a scrum. And though I'll admit I did try to avoid it this week, I can't pretend that I don't see the 1,000-pound bear in the room. That's because this week Republican John Cox brought out a Kodiak bear with him to a press conference and then was disappointed that the bear, not him, got all the attention. Yeah, the recall election circus has officially pitched a tent in California. We're going to get into that more with Marisa Lagos, political correspondent at KQED and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown. Welcome back, Marisa. Happy Friday. And KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman. Libby, welcome back to you. Hey, Egg. Glad to be here. All right. It took a while for Newsom to even say the word recall, but now he's uh, definitely taking it seriously. Libby, I guess maybe the bigger question is how seriously will California Democratic voters be about a recall election in the fall? You know, there's a couple of numbers that I look at when I want to assess how this recall election is going so far. Polling, of course, is one of them. Um, The latest PPIC poll numbers that came out last week have majorities of Californians approving of how Governor Newsom is handling the state's public K-12 education system. Uh, almost 60% of likely voters gave Newsom positive reviews in that poll for handling school reopenings, which is going to be a huge issue for Republicans, already is for many of the candidates who have declared and Newsom's approval ratings overall are over 50 percent in recent polling, um, you know, and support for the recall hovers closer to 40 percent. Uh, then again, I also look at fundraising numbers. A eh? And, you know, we had recent uh, filings become public in the last couple of weeks. And so far, the pro recall folks are ahead mm-hmm. with uh, five and a half million approximately raised, whereas Newsom's defense brought in uh, about four and a half million. But a lot of that money has been spent on the pro recall side because of how expensive it was to pull in all of those signatures to actually qualify for the ballot. Whereas Newsom's uh, defenders have about two and a half million still cash on hand. Um, however, interesting to note, pro recall supporters really have many more small dollar donations uh, to show. And, and the question is whether that shows support from the grassroots uh, more so so far than the folks who are trying to battle the recall. Marisa, what about you? Because, yeah, voters will have to answer two questions in a recall election. Will they even think to answer them? 
I mean, Libby. To want to answer them, I guess. Yeah, just want to answer them. I mean, you know, Libby really laid it out. I mean, I think the problem here um, for recall supporters and and this, you know, cast of challengers that is coming up uh, in recent weeks is is just the registration numbers. I mean, Democrats have such an advantage and they're really going to need to win over independent voters as well, which as Libby noted, are not as concerned as they may have been six or eight months ago about the state of things in California. Um, Newsom's coming into this with a couple advantages. There's a lot of federal money coming down from these relief bills that Joe Biden pushed, uh, that Nancy Pelosi helped shepherd. Uh, even more would come if we saw some of these stimulus and infrastructure plans get through. Um, the state budget's in a pretty good spot. You know, schools are reopening slowly, but they are reopening. Shots are getting into arms. So I think that it is going to be a challenge for folks to get Californians who are really like excited to get back out and travel this summer and just sort of get back to normal to, you know, kind of tap into that rage that they might have had back in December of 2020. Well, Marisa, where would you see, though, like a specific thing that, say, John Cox or Caitlyn Jenner, who we're going to talk about in just a bit, where can they get some traction possibly against Newsom? Yeah, I mean, I think that the same, like, Republicans have a good argument against Democrats in this state, which they've been talking about since, you know, the last uh, head of the California GOP, Jim Brulte, like, they broke it. I mean, talk about homelessness, talk about inequality, talk about things like, you know, the the economy and how much it's hurt from COVID. I mean, that's bouncing back, but some of those sort of intransigent issues exist. So I do think there's an opening there, but I'm not seeing quite yet that anybody lining up to oppose Newsom is coming forward with specific policy proposals that really would change the game or even just like the personality of someone like Trump, you know, that would really change the game here on the ground. It's, it, it is going to be challenging. Libby, where do you see a, a possible attack, say, from Republicans that are running against Newsom? Yeah, I think what Marisa is saying is right, that the Republicans will have to pin the state's problems, the housing and homelessness crisis and uh, slowing growth. I mean, we saw that a congressional seat may be gone from Southern California uh, as California is set to lose for the first time in its history a congressional representation because of the census numbers. All of that would have to be pinned on Newsom. And so far, it feels like the general uh, understanding is those are huge problems, but whether or not voters are going to be galvanized and think that it's worth it to turn out to to remove him from office early. Um, that's the big hurdle that Republican supporters would have to surmount. And it's not clear that they, they're able to do that so far. It's State of Affairs with KQED's Marisa Lagos and KPCC's Libby Dankman. Now, this week, Caitlyn Jenner had a one-on-one with Fox News's Sean Hannity from her private plane hangar in Malibu. Now, the interview was thick with Trumpian talking points. Uh, she expressed a love for the wall and also ending California's sanctuary state status, but uh, it was also very light on policy details. So, uh, Marisa, who was this for and how do you think it went? Well, it's clearly for the Republican base, right? I mean, Caitlyn Jenner wants to tap into the national network that really helped put this recall on the ballot money wise and that, you know, helped propel Trump to victory and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, how did it go? Interesting question. I mean, it was, I, I think she, showed a lot of the weaknesses that we've seen historically of first-time candidates without any political experience. I mean, she was very short on policy specifics. She stumbled over some pretty sort of key areas, including on immigration, um, you know, on transgender rights. She sort of, I think, might have hurt herself with both sides because she's really angered the LGBTQ community um, by saying, yes, you know, girl sports should be protected, but it's kind of trying to be more compassionate, which is not what the Trump base wants to hear. Um, you know, I don't think she did anything that's going to derail this campaign before it starts. But I also didn't think that she got up there and showed herself to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example. The Sedona, Arizona Chamber of Commerce probably is thanking uh, Caitlyn Jenner because she <laughs> mentioned how one of her neighbors in a in a hangar next to hers in, in Malibu, a private plane hangar, by the way, I think I mentioned that, uh, is moving to Sedona because they can't stand to live in California anymore. Libby, I mean, if you haven't been to Sedona, Libby, you ought to go. It's one of the pretty places in the United States. And you come from like the state of Washington, which is just all beautiful all the time. But how do you think it all went? I'm convinced I'm booking my tickets. Sedona is wonderful. It's good about travel. Great. Thank you, tour guide A. Um, I think that 
this was clearly a, a, a boon for her campaign and that she becomes, you know, a, having an hour on Hannity will always help you with fundraising with the Republican Party. But Hannity really had to do a lot of handholding in this interview on getting down to brass tacks. I mean, does she support sanctuary cities? You know, what does she feel about um, COVID-19 restrictions? All these things kind of had to be pried out of Caitlin. And you'd think that uh, somebody who was going in with a real agenda and and thought that they had a real shot at the gubernatorial race would come in with some talking points, some, some mm, key yeah. takeaways. Um, and she just didn't seem prepared in that way. But again, Hannity kind of held her through the, uh, the conversation and she she hit some some major bullet points. Well, she said she's pro illegal immigration until Hannity corrected her. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that was not a great moment there. Um, okay, so she's uh, had an interview, a friendly interview with Fox News, a TMZ quick hit in a parking lot, CNN, and then last night in the LA Times. But really, as far as I see it, no California political report. Oh, wait a second, I've got two of the best California <laughs> political reporters on the line right now. So each of you get a question to ask Caitlyn Jenner right now. Libby, you first. Okay, at the risk of sounding patronizing, after watching that interview, I want to know if Caitlyn Jenner, former Olympian, reality television star, no elected experience, no experience running any kind of large business, um, does she actually know what state government does? And does she know what the governor's role is in the system? Does she know the job that she's applying for? Because I didn't get a, a sense during that conversation that she feels strongly about it and that she actually wants the job. Now, Libby, a couple of weeks ago, we established that Marisa Lagos is a huge, huge reality TV junkie. So I don't know where this question is going to go. Marisa, go ahead. What's your question to Caitlyn Jenner? Oh, yeah. I want to talk about the Kardashians. No, I mean, I think to Libby's point, I I would really try to sort of dig in on, yeah, make the case that you are qualified for this. And I would extend that to say, let's talk about some specific policy areas. Let's talk more about wildfires. I mean, you know, in the interview, she was very sort of vague about, well, I cleared 75 feet around my house and that's what they need to do in the forest. What does that even mean? So like I would dig in on some of the big issues, climate change, wildfires that are facing California and want to know more on like what are her actual policy positions. One more thing on the recall, only because I've been thinking about this for a while now. Depending on how all of this plays out, do either of you think it might be a good idea for the California Democratic Party to maybe have a backup Democrat just in case? Uh, Libby, what do you think? Listen, Cruz Bustamante uh, will still defend his choice to get in during the Gray Davis recall. The lieutenant governor who first said he wouldn't run and then he jumped in. Uh, His slogan was, wait for it, uh, no on recall, yes on Bustamante, which 18 years later, I still don't know what that means or what voters were supposed to take away from that. Uh, His entry into the race apparently led the Schwarzenegger team to pop champagne bottles and just celebrate because they knew that this was going to cause confusion and uh, dissension among Democratic ranks. Uh, I think that most Democratic strategists would say right now they definitely do not want to see anyone put their hat in the ring. That could only lead to um, confusion and, and problems for Newsom. He wanted to boost a Monte move and cruise into the recall. No. Oh, oh come on. No. I, I am a oh. savvy slogan maker. Uh, Marisa, what do you think? A backup them? You know, I think it makes, to Libby's point, the case a lot more challenging for Democrats. I understand the desire to have a backup plan, but I think at this point, and this could change before the filing deadline later this summer, it seems like the best political move would just be to sort of rally around Newsom, and that's certainly what he's hoping for. All right, let's go from statewide to local city politics with a bit of an international twist. A report from Axios this week had uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti as one of the candidates under consideration by the Biden administration to be ambassador to India. Libby, first remind us of the relationship Eric Garcetti has with Joe Biden. Sure. You know, this is not the first time that we had heard uh, as Angelinos that uh, Mayor Garcetti might have one foot out the door, right? A couple of years ago, he was spending a ton of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, racking up those frequent flyer miles. He was exploring a campaign for president himself. He decided against running, but then he became a national co-chair of the Biden campaign. He was fundraising and stumping for the future president all over the country. And that led to speculation once Biden won that Garcetti would secure a cabinet appointment in the administration administration as a reward for his efforts. Um, It appears that Pete Buttigieg may have stolen his thunder on that front. Uh, Transportation secretary was one of the rumored positions that Garcetti was up for. 
And since last summer, uh, Garcetti has been uh, mired in a bit of a scandal. He has been accused by an LAPD officer who used to be on a security detail of enabling and and kind of looking the other way while a close aide was sexually harassing the officer and other city employees. Now, that's something that Mayor Garcetti has denied. The depositions are ongoing in that case. Um, But that was uh, assumed to be one of the reasons that uh, Biden went past Garcetti and chose to not add him to the cabinet. Um, But right now, this appears to be uh, on the table, a potential offer of an ambassadorship that would mean the mayor leaves uh, about 18 months before his term was set to be out. Now, before we jump into the scramble that might happen at City Hall if uh, Garcetti were to head to India, Marisa, how does the North... uh the Northern California political crowd view Garcetti. I know that he's he's always been ambitious and uh, I, I, he considered trying to run for governor at some point, but he's always had an eye on somewhere else, it seems like, a lot of the time. So how does uh, Northern California view Eric Garcetti? Probably nicer than y'all do in L.A. I mean, which is like <laughs> typical, right? It's it's like always you hate your hometown paper, you hate your mayor because, you know, you're too close to it. I mean, I think within the broader Democratic sort of community around California, to your point, he's seen as this rising star. And I think a lot of the issues that, you know, have dogged him in L.A. and, and other mayors, quite frankly, are not as visible to people who don't live there. So I don't know, you know, I don't know that he's on the minds of a lot of people a lot of the time besides us political dorks, but um, I think he's He's pretty well liked outside of Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, he traveled to a lot of primary states for a while and got a lot of heat here. Libby, remember, I mean, when people were saying, well, are you running for something else and not being mayor of L.A.? Yeah, of course. And, you know, when he decided to drop the idea of the presidential race, he said it was because he wanted to focus on his job here. He also, in December, when it became clear he wasn't going to be offered a a cabinet appointment, um, he said that he wanted to finish out the the work here in L.A. I mean, the the issue of homelessness uh, would, of course, be the number one thing to hang around his neck as, uh, you know, eight years in office so far, another 18 months to go. This issue has only gotten worse under his tenure. Um, This is something that he's poured a ton of money into and and plans to spend a billion dollars on in the next fiscal year, but still has worsened despite the number of folks that have been housed. Uh, The scope of the problem has only has only gotten worse. So certainly an issue if he wants to apply for other jobs or, or be thought about in that conversation, uh, we here in, in Los Angeles would continue to, to talk about. Libby, really quick, what would be the uh, thing that would happen if he did leave and they needed a short-term uh, interim mayor for uh, L.A.? Yes. So the city council can appoint a replacement for the remainder of the term. That's until December 2022. Um, Already a a third of the 15 member city council in L.A. here are either considering their own campaigns for mayor, uh, have acknowledged that they're considering it, or they've declared the candidacy. Joe Buscaino is already in. Um, Nuri Martinez, the city council president, says she's seriously considering it. We assume that Kevin DeLeon and Mark Ridley Thomas, because they refuse to rule it out, are also considering. Uh, runs of their own. So the question is whether a member of the city council currently could gather enough support uh, to win the seat in the interim, or if any of them would want the interim job, because uh, that would certainly put a damper on their own campaigning. And Libby, we, we have you- some experience with that up here. Remember Ed Lee, guys. If <laughs> oh, you need any yeah, advice, right. give us a call. That's right. That's right. Uh, Libby, we heard uh, earlier uh, on news uh, that uh, we're, we're talking about the budget, uh, the people's budget, uh, because activists with Black Lives Matter LA and other civil rights groups uh, last night presented their fiscal wish list to the city's uh, council members. Uh, what do they want the mayor's budget? to do. Sure. These are the messages that we've heard since uh, last year during the uh, the George Floyd protests and the summer that, that saw hundreds of thousands of people in the street all over California. Uh, this is a conversation about divesting from law enforcement, investing in things like mental health care, housing, education, community development that activists say would make communities safer and, um, you know, really move resources away from criminalizing um, uh, different behaviors in, in especially black and brown communities and, and a carceral system that they say brings more problems than um, it alleviates. Uh, these are conversations that have been going on, but the uh, process of, of community budgeting and participatory budgeting is something Black Lives Matter LA and its coalition is really uh, committed to. And uh, seven city council members participated in that last night. Um, and budget hearings are ongoing. The, the new budget has to be approved by July 1st. And the final budget hearing is actually next Friday. 
case. So I'll keep reporting on that. You know, Marisa, on the point of criminal justice reform, I mean, coming up later on the show, we're going to hear part two of Frank Stoltz's story on George Gascon and how he has uh, reversed decades of parole policy to support release in most cases. Uh, a real controversial decision here. But it got me thinking about the new state attorney general, Rob Bonta, who shares uh, many of George Gascon's prosecutorial values. Um, Marisa, Bonta has a very quick turnaround to run for re-election. How do you think that will test how California voters feel about criminal justice reform? I think it stands to be huge. I mean, we're seeing this challenge by Anne-Marie Schubert, the Sacramento County District Attorney, who's really in line with the more traditional law and order kind of prosecutor approach. And, you know, Bonds is lucky he's not a former prosecutor in some ways because he doesn't have the same track record on individual cases to run on. But I do think that folks who oppose a lot of these reforms, including Schubert, um, are going to really try to capitalize on some of the momentum we're seeing against people like Gascon and our own DA here in San Francisco. Francisco, Chase Aboudian, who's also facing a recall. On the other hand, voters have been pretty open to these reforms. They've passed them over, you know, the legislature in some cases. Um, and I do think that Bonta is a skilled politician. So it's really going to be a question of, you know, not only that debate, but how much money these folks raise and, and really just, you know, as, as ever, how much attention the public is paying and, you know, what kind of unknown factors could arise, whether it's an individual case or just decisions Bonta makes in the coming weeks and months. You know, if Cruz Bustamante had me back in 2003 when I was a lowercase a Martinez, we'd be talking about Governor Bustamante, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, I'd have done it for him. I could have with the slogans. He could have hired you. (laughs) Marisa Lagos, political correspondent with KQED, co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown, KPCC senior politics reporter Libby Dankman. Marisa, Libby, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Hey, you too. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Flash flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Aaron Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called land spouts which are basically like mini tornadoes. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. There's been a, a lot of focus on the Inland Empire lately due to the large number of warehouses located out there to hold all the goods that we order online and that we want delivered right away. And with that comes a lot of trucks going back and forth, which means a lot of emissions. But the residents who've objected to all the pollution now have a new group of allies, college students. Those students are developing a new tool to shape public policy. As KPCC infrastructure reporter Cher McNary explains, their work could influence a critical vote by air quality regulators tomorrow. In this pandemic year of teaching online, University of Redlands professor Daniel Kloster was looking for a real-world challenge for the students taking his environmental justice courses. I wanted to find a way to create a link between the community and the classroom. And since his specialty is geography, he wanted the challenge to be a mapping project. He asked some community activists from groups like the Sierra Club and the People's Collective for Environmental Justice to speak to his students about the sorts of data they could map. They said, we think warehouses are targeting poor and minority communities. Well, that's a question that you can take to the world, that you can 
you know, marshal the inquisitive brains of undergraduate students and say, is this true? The class took up the challenge. Student Rosario Cardenas was on board for the assignment right away. She grew up in a less polluted part of the Inland Empire, and once she got to college, she realized that many of her classmates suffered a lot more pollution than she did, and she wanted to understand why. Students, friends, they shouldn't have to endure polluted air because they live next to warehouses. And I didn't think this would still be a problem in 2021, especially not in California. They decided they would map warehouses and see how they overlapped with social justice issues like poverty, pollution, and health. But there was a problem. Nobody could say where exactly all those warehouses were, which you kind of need when you're trying to make a map. The South Coast Air Quality Management District didn't even have the information in its own files. It was proprietary data gathered by a private company and would cost thousands of dollars to obtain. So the environmental groups asked the AQMD to buy it, and it did. Finally, with that data in hand, the students could now map the location of every warehouse over 100,000 square feet in the air basin shared by Riverside, San Bernardino, Los Angeles, and Orange Counties. The number shocked Cardenas. I knew there was a lot, but to hear that there were 3,000 on the map was mind-blowing. Actually, more than 3,400. And when they overlaid the warehouse locations with maps of poor communities or neighborhoods with mostly Black and Latinx populations, it confirmed her sense that they are disproportionately affected by truck pollution. It just shows like why we have so much air pollution in this area. And we're not even blaming these diesel trucks or corporations for being the cause of it. Classmate Diego Mora grew up in Fontana, home to many warehouses. He took on the task of showing their locations in relation to the percentage of people who suffer from asthma. For him, it was personal. When my brother was young, uh, he had to deal with asthma. His asthma map showed higher rates closest to warehouses, which were in communities housing more poor Black and Latinx families, leaving them vulnerable. Minority populations live closer to warehouses, which creates more exposure. Exposure to the pollutants that can cause breathing problems like asthma. His classmates used the warehouse locations to show several different problems. Hundreds of schools were within a half mile of warehouses. Also, the maps showed that the people who bought the most online during the pandemic were least likely to live near the warehouses distributing the goods. The maps the students created are no mere academic exercise. These maps, showing the locations of warehouses for the first time, will have a real-world purpose, says Professor Kloster. When the environmental injustice of an industrial location isn't known or visualized, then it can be ignored. And that means we can continue to affect poor and minority communities in ways that we might not do if they were wealthier, more vocal in in other parts of the city. The AQMD has been drafting new rules intended to limit air pollution from trucks and warehouses, and a decisive vote is coming up. And the students and activists have published the maps to help people argue for stricter controls on emissions. Covering infrastructure, I'm Sharon McNary. All right, let's get more into that vote with Sharon. Uh, Sharon, what is happening today? Well, um, at this moment, as we speak, the South Coast Air Quality Management District is getting set to vote on these new rules. I mean, to boil it down to its very essence, the rules would give warehouse operators a choice. Take action above and beyond state and local laws to reduce emissions from trucks and your warehouse operations, or pay a fee to let AQMD take its own actions to cut pollution. Uh, This proposal is called the indirect source rule, and it's indirect because the warehouses themselves aren't really the big sources of pollution. It's the trucks that come and go and idle at the warehouses that create the pollution hotspots. This rule's been in the making for about three years, so lots of hearings, input from the public and the logistics industry, and the AQMD board could very well vote uh, in the next hour or two on it. Sharon, what kinds of actions would warehouses have to take if the rule passes? Um, The AQMD staff has kind of gamified the challenge of cutting truck pollution. So if you're a warehouse, uh, you have to amass a certain number of points to avoid this fee. Uh, The rules phase in over five years, starting with the very biggest warehouses and then rolling down to the smaller ones. So you could convert your fleet of trucks to electric or require drivers using your warehouse to have cleaner trucks, for example, Uh, run the warehouse on solar power, add windows and skylights to reduce the need for energy 
paint the roof white so it doesn't absorb too much heat and become a heat island. They could convert the little forklifts and mules that tow things around uh, to cleaner energy as well. Kind of sounds like California's cap and trade, the carbon credits kind of thing. Um, if, if a warehouse can't build enough points, Sharon, or, or maybe doesn't want to play this game and amass points, I mean, then they pay a fee or how much would those fees be? Well, that is what's going to be debated today once the public testimony ends uh, at the AQMD Governing Board. Um, the staff that works for the agency came up with a figure, and of course, the trucking industry would like it to be lower and less strict, and the environmentalists would like to boost it higher. Um, at the level of stringency that the AQMD staff is suggesting, a big warehouse could end up paying a couple hundred thousand dollars in the early years of the program, with the costs going down over time as the warehouse gets cleaner. And presumably, they will pass the cost on to us. Um, does this mean we're going to be paying a lot more for the stuff we buy on Amazon? Well, it's not just the stuff we order online. It's also the goods we get from brick and mortar stores you know, like Walmart. They all use warehouses. Um, the staff says that the program could add one nickel to every $10 worth of goods but eventually save $2.7 billion over the next decade in the form of public health benefits. Hundreds fewer premature deaths, thousands of fewer asthma attacks, tens of thousands of uh, fewer lost work days due to sick time. So they say the rule would generate about three times as much in public benefits than the cost of the program. And the amount of the fee really does matter. If the fee comes in too low, then companies will just pay to pollute. They'll write a check and not make any changes. If it comes in at a higher level, then they might not be mo then they might be motivated to alter their operations to be cleaner and greener because it might save them money over paying a fee. It seems pretty clear the environmentalists are in favor of a, of a stringent version of this rule. What's the view of the logistics industry? Uh, the warehouse industry has argued that they're already building fairly clean warehouses in some areas. There's one in Ontario that a few AQMD governing board members toured. It's got all electric trucks and solar power and all those clean green goodies. Um, and then just this last week, environmental and community groups reached a big stomping $47 million settlement with the developer of one of the largest warehouses ever, the World Logistics Center in Moreno Valley. They'll invest that in electric vehicles, rooftop solar, and so on even improvements outside the warehouse to protect wildlife. But the problem is there's thousands of warehouses already built that are not so modern. And that doesn't solve the problem of getting the existing warehouses to reduce emissions. And that's what this warehouse indirect source rule is intended to do. That's KPCC infrastructure correspondent Sharon McNary. Sharon, thank you very much. Very welcome. All right, coming up, it's going to be Frank Stoltz, uh, part two of Frank Stoltz's uh, report on L.A. District Attorney George Gascon. It's about one of his most contentious moves that he pulled off right off the bat, which is going against the grain of past L.A. District Attorney decisions, and it has to do with parole, parole for California. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Journalism and democracy go together, like late nights and taco trucks. Each is good on its own, but they're better together. So the fact that journalism is in crisis in many places is not good for democracy. Local reporting fuels democracy. It helps us understand the communities in which we live. Show your support today at las.com slash give. Thanks. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. 
For decades, L.A. prosecutors have traveled to prisons around the state, mostly urging parole boards to keep people convicted of violent crimes locked up. Yesterday, we reported on how L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon has told his prosecutors to stay home and to support parole in most cases. The move sparked strong opposition from a number of his own prosecutors as well as families of crime victims. In his second of two reports, KPCC's Frank Stoltz brings us that part of the story. One of George Gascon's fundamental views of the criminal justice system is that it's too harsh. For example, he thinks far too many people are denied parole when they're eligible. Gascon says L.A. prosecutors have contributed to the problem by generally opposing parole. He says they're too focused on the person's original crime. It almost makes an assumption that the individual that has been in prison for decades is still the same person that he or she was when they were convicted. Gascon believes parole boards are best situated to determine whether someone has changed. So he's ordered his deputies to support parole for everyone, except those considered at high risk of reoffending. Even in those cases, prosecutors must remain neutral. The change is in keeping with the DA's efforts to challenge conventional wisdom about what is fair and just. But Gascon's policy has sparked sharp criticism from some family members of people who were victims of violent crime. Hello, my name is Maria Barron. Maria Barron was among a small group that gathered on the steps of the Hall of Justice in downtown L.A. recently. Her 10-year-old nephew was murdered three years ago. Please help us recall Gascon. You kill a child, you get it for your years, and that's it? For Barron, there is no redemption for the murderer of a child. The boy's uncle, David Barron, said his accused killers should never be paroled. He's never going to get the chance to grow up, but they have the chance to get out of prison and have whatever life they want to have afterwards, and that's not fair. Sheriff Alex Villanueva told the rally D.A. Gascon has walked out on victims of crime. I cannot have a working relationship with someone who's deciding to reform the entire system at the behest of criminal offenders, for criminal offenders, leaving victims of violent crime in the dust. Gascon says he is not leaving them in the dust, that he's providing victims assistance counselors. Crime victims' families are far from unanimous on questions of punishment and rehabilitation. Consider Najuma Smith-Pollard, whose 24-year-old son was murdered three years ago. People have the right to be mad, so I'm not taking that away from, from anyone who's mad and angry. From my vantage point, I am centered in the space of redemption. The pastor of Word of Encouragement Community Church in South L.A. says she will go to the parole hearings for her son's killer. She's in the minority. Only about 10% of family members go. Really, the only connection I have left is to go to their parole hearing because after that is done. But she doesn't expect to argue to keep him in prison. 50 years doesn't change my reality. My anger doesn't go away with time. My anger goes away because I do whatever healing work I need to do. Smith Pollard says her healing will come in part from seeing her son's killer turn his life around. He's serving an eight years to life sentence in Nevada. Like I told the judge, seeing another black man go to prison and a black man being dead does not bring me joy. Last month, a poll suggested many family members of victims in L.A. County are not in favor of long prison terms. The poll found 60 percent said they support shorter sentences and spending more money on prevention and rehabilitation. The poll was paid for by a group that backs reducing incarceration. When it comes to parole, Charles Lafayette may be an example of Gascon's vision. I spent all those years with no hope, no hope of ever coming home. He served decades in prison for a murder in L.A. during a drug deal gone bad. He was 17 at the time. Lafayette recalls he was hardly the model prisoner during his first dozen years behind bars. I sold drugs in prison. I was involved in assaults. I was a gang member. Things began to change after a conversation with his mother. She asked if he still loved her. In my mind, I thought that was the, the dumbest question in the world to ask me. And she said, well, if you love me so much, why do you keep being involved with the same thing that, that's going to keep you away from me? Lafayette started to turn his life around. He left the gang. He started going to classes on substance abuse, the criminal mind, anger management. It's hard being angry all the time. It's very mentally draining, emotionally draining, very stressful to be angry all the time. Then Moose came along. 
Moose was the first dog he trained as part of a special prison program. I love to work with the dogs. It brought out my human side again. It got me back in touch with humanity and my emotions. Last year, the 45-year-old Lafayette was granted parole after 27 years behind bars. He continues to train dogs. He has a job at a halfway house. And he married his high school sweetheart. They had kept in touch all these years. Covering criminal justice, I'm Frank Stoltz. Do needles make you squeamish? Squeamish enough that it's actually stopping you from getting a COVID vaccine? Well, you are not alone, my friend. And there is a way to get over it. Find out how when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. I wish I could take the pain away. If you can make it through the night, there's a brighter day. Everything will be alright if you hold on. It's a struggle every day, gotta roll on. And there's no way I could pay you back. But my plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcast, Sammy Martinez. We've talked about how demand for COVID-19 vaccines has dropped off, yet more than 60% of Americans still need at least one shot. Now, the reasons for the decrease are many, but one simple one might be just a fear of needles, a fear of needles. Sam Omar Hall is a multi-platform editor for the LA Times, and he's been looking into this issue. Sam, welcome to Take Two. Thanks, A. All right. Now, I know this is a probably a tough number to pin down, but how many people out there are afraid of needles and actually might not be getting vaccinated because of that fear? Yeah, it's uh, kind of hard to pin down for sure, since it's not something people really want to brag about. You know, you'll get made fun of if you're afraid of needles. But um, the surveys that I found showed that a quarter of adults have some fear of needles and about 5% may actually avoid shots due to that fear. You said hard to pin down. Just another needle there. We're probably freaking people out that don't like needles. Uh, Sam, why might some people have this fear? Um, you know, what one psychologist told me is that it's basically this feeling of disgust, that it's just gross to have something poked into you. It's called a body envelope violation. So we just don't like, most people don't like having things uh, poked into them. Yeah. And you know, I, I got to admit, okay, so this is I, trying to do this in as short amount of time as possible. So I, I thought that I had trouble seeing blood. Whenever I used to get blood drawn, because I'd, I'd faint, I'd actually pass out when I'd see you know, them drawing blood. And then one day, it's like five or six years ago, I was getting a cortisone shot in my elbow. And I was, I was watching it just because I, I, you know, why not? It turns out that I was afraid of the needle, not the blood. Seeing the needle in my elbow is the thing that really just freaked me out, and I fainted again. So I can completely relate. But how common is that fainting uh, when, when you see the needle or actually when the needle goes in in any part of your body? Yeah, um, needle, needle phobia or fear, it's under this umbrella called blood injection injury phobia. So it's a common response um, for people uh, when they – some people when they see blood or injection or injury – to pass out. It's called the vasovagal response and it drops your blood pressure and your heart rate really suddenly and you can just you can just keel over. Okay, but there is a, a technique of her, right? To, to to prevent from passing out. How does that work? Yeah. So what experts told me is it's called applied tension and it's super simple. It just involves 
tensing your large muscle groups and then releasing them. So when you're tensing them, you're, you're uh, building up your, your blood pressure and your heart rate. And you can also use like a squeezy ball, something just to get to get that tension. And probably don't look, right? <laughs> Sam, I mean, I, I think the visual of seeing that thing in some part of your body is, is probably the tipping point for a lot of people. Definitely don't look. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there's something else called the card system too, the card system. What is the card system and how might someone use this uh, in this case? Yeah, so uh, Canadian researchers, I guess in Canada, uh, kids get their vaccines in schools. And so they were trying to develop a system that was evidence-based that they could teach to kids to get through these, uh, to get through these shots. So CARD stands for Comfort, Ask Questions, Relax, and Distract. And the way it works is the kids can choose which cards they play, but it's the same for adults. You might want to distract yourself. You might want to find ways to comfort yourself. Uh, and of course, relaxing is good. So those are the four uh, parts of the card system. What about exposure therapy? Yeah, and that's this is a way that people can actually address the fear at the root. So it can work for any, any kind of phobia, but uh, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. So you're basically trying to retrain your brain. So you'd, you'd be sitting with a therapist and you would, you'd make a ranked list of what scares you. So for needles, you might say, if I see a doctor in a white lab coat, I start to freak out. And then <laughs> uh, if, I, if I'm filling out a form, then I see a syringe. So one by one, you would go through those things and you would expose yourself to them in a safe setting. And what the experts told me is that you will panic, you will feel distress, and that's okay. And then your body learns that it's not a threat. And in a, a couple sessions or even sometimes one session, this exposure therapy can can kind of retrain your brain that uh, those things aren't actually going to hurt you. You know, and I got to admit another thing, Sam. So, you know, when with my kids and also with my grandkids, whenever they'd get like a bump, right? And it wasn't like, you know, say they fell, but it's something that every kid does. They fall down, something hurts, and they would keep crying, crying over and over again. I would say, all right, well, if you're going to keep crying, we're going to have to go to the doctor and get a shot. And <laughs> that stopped them from crying immediately. Now I feel terrible that maybe I have contributed in some way to this phobia, this fear of needles. I mean, is it, is, does it something that possibly goes back even that far uh, in, in someone's life, this fear? Um, yes. Uh, from what I, from what I read um, uh, in the papers, it's that most of this needle phobia is, is born out of childhood. Usually, I don't think you threatening them with needles would, would traumatize <laughs> them, but um, people uh, like one of the sources I talked to for the story, she had allergy shots as a kid frequently, oh, wow. many shots, and she hated it. And it was really unpleasant for her. And so now it's developed and snowballed into this needle phobia that she has as an adult. Wow. Now you talked to a number of people for this uh, story. Did, did any of them adopt one, uh, uh, you know, it, these approaches to go get the vaccine to actually say, okay, I'm going to use these, uh, these methods of, of coping and get this uh, COVID vaccine? Um, yeah. So uh, the woman I was just talking about, her name is Danielle Marie. Mm. She's 38 of North Hollywood. And actually, before talking to me, she had gotten her first shot because she was terrified she would infect her parents or her grandparents. So she just sucked it up and did it. But she had her own system, which was she had headphones playing like uh, some of her favorite music, which was Juliet and the Licks. <laughs> and then she was also reading a book at the same time. And so she basically used that distraction factor uh, you know, to to make it so she didn't see or hear anything. Sam, were you expecting like when when we, the vaccine rolled out and obviously everyone knew that it had to be done through a needle? Were were you expecting that a fear of needles would be an obstacle to getting a COVID vaccine? I can't. I, I got to admit, I didn't think that would be one either. Well, it was something I was personally thinking about because mm. I didn't really want to get a shot. And so wow. since they started talking about the vaccine last year, I was like, oh, well, that sounds good for ending the pandemic, but I don't want to get a shot. So it was something that, I, <laughs> that was on my mind. And then uh, all these pictures in the news and on TV and social media, of these huge needles and, and people getting poked. And I was just blocking my eyes like, no, I don't want to <laughs> oh, see that. man. Well, I guess, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We should have thought of that before. That's uh, Sam Omar Hall, multi-platform editor with the LA Times with some advice on getting the COVID vaccine if you are afraid of needles. Sam, thank you very much. Thanks, A. Finally, the weekend is here. And with Mother's Day right around the corner, I think I forgot about Mother's Day. We have some event ideas for you. 
I'm KPCC's Itzi Quintanilla. Now, A. Martinez, Mother's Day is this Sunday, and all weekend long, there are several events dedicated to celebrating moms everywhere. Yeah, why didn't you remind me, Itzi, of Mother's <laughs> Day? All right, like what? what? What do we got? Well, first up, there's lots of activities and pop-ups happening at the Row in downtown L.A. all weekend long. There will be a flower truck pop-up offering flower arrangements on Saturday, an outdoor pottery class on Sunday, and lots of retail specials. Also happening Sunday, you can treat your mom and grandma to a trip to the Bowers Museum in Santa Ana. They're offering free general admission and reduced $10 tickets to the Walt Disney Archives. Advanced ticket reservations are strongly recommended since the museum continues to operate at 50% reduced capacity. I'm trying to make last-minute reservations. It's the, everything is booked in L.A. All right, tell us uh, about a couple of mariachi events in honor of Mother's Day. Yeah, well, if you want to start Sunday morning off with a virtual serenade, Vallarta Supermarkets is hosting a live one with the all-woman LA-based mariachi ensemble called Mariachi Divas. That's happening at 9 a.m. on Facebook and Instagram Live. Later that day, the Ford Theater will be streaming a concert combining some of the best mariachi performances at the venue. Mariachi Ángeles de Pepe Martínez Jr. and Las Jovencitas are among the performances. That presentation premieres Sunday at 3.30 p.m. on Facebook and YouTube. All right, I think we got Mother's Day covered. So what else is happening this weekend? Yeah, well, today the Natural History Museum is featuring a live stream discussion between Kogi chef Roy Choi and Sarah Portnoy, author of Food, Health, and Culture in Latino Los Angeles. They'll be exploring L.A. culture through its food, discussing questions like what defines L.A. cuisine. If you want to tune into that, it starts tonight at 6 p.m. on Zoom and YouTube. Also, if you find yourself cruising around town this weekend, look out for a series of outdoor installations called Art Rise. It's part of L.A. County's We Rise Mental Health Initiative, and it's got projects across five neighborhoods in L.A., including K-Town, Lemert Park, South L.A., and more. The works focus on collective well-being, health, and connection, and one of the projects, a large neon installation by Patrick Martinez, opens today at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. You know, it's see, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love history. I mean, there's no A in history, but there might be. It kind of sounds like history, but okay. Anything happening to satisfy that craving? Well, yeah, you're in luck. May is Asian Pacific Heritage Month, so the Huntington, the Library Foundation of L.A., and the L.A. Public Library have collaborated on an online exhibition called Stories and Voices from L.A. Chinatown. It features maps, historic photographs, interviews, and more. There's also an accompanying outdoor exhibition in Chinatown. But that's not all, A. There's still a lot more events happening this weekend and beyond. And our friends here at KPCC and LAist have a whole list of ideas and activities. You can check that out on LAist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. And that's KPCC's Itzy Quintanilla. Itzy, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, that's it for Take Two this week. Our producers are Itzi Quintanilla and Julia Paskin. They also direct the show. Phoenix O also helped us out this week. Sophia James is our news apprentice. Take Two is engineered by Hasmik Bogosian. Our senior producer and editor is Megan Larson. If you missed any part of the show, you want to catch up on the week over the weekend, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be. Take Two will be uh, waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're uh, on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA, which is good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at two. Marketplace is next. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.